Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDSCAST. I am your host, Owen Marr, and joining me today as co-host is Alex Samra. Our guest today is Justice Killian. Justice is principal at Space Capital and founder at Space Talent. He comes from the investment world, having worked as an analyst at Merrill Lynch and then as an impact investor in Africa and Asia. Justice became interested in space because he sees potential for the industry to help connect the world. In today's conversation, we discuss space investment and how we can bring more talent into the industry. Welcome to SEDSCAST, episode 16, with Justice Killian. Hi everyone and welcome to SEDSCAST, it's your host Owen Marr. Joining me today as co-host is Alex Samra. Alex, how you doing? Doing good, how are you Owen? I'm doing well. Looking forward to our talk today. The guest is Justice Killian, who is principal at Space Capital and also the founder of Space Talent. We're thrilled to have him on the show today to talk about space entrepreneurship and venture capital. Justice, how are you doing? I'm great, guys. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So let's jump right into it. Can you start by telling us who you are, what you do, and how you first got into space? Sure. Yeah. So my role is um, principal at Space Capital. We are an early stage venture fund that focuses on um, all layers of the space technology stack. So at the very base level, that includes infrastructure, which is rockets and satellites. Then you have the distribution layer, which brings that data down and helps distribute it across multiple industries. And then you have applications, unique you know, sort of um, applications that get built on top of that technology. Um, so we invest all across the stack and um, have been doing this for, for a number of years now. So um, lots of really incredible innovation. Um, my uh, connection to space is um, an interesting one. As a kid, I, I grew up, you know, fascinated with um, physics and space and, you know, uh, loved watching the, the shuttle launches and believing, you know, that one day I would be able to go up there. And um, I think, you know, as I got older uh, and, and went into university, I wasn't an engineer, you know, uh, my, my interest was more in business and that led me into the financial markets. And I've sort of always per- pursued a career path of solving big, complex problems. And, you know, to start out, one of the, the most complex, you know, challenges out there is the behavior of the capital markets. And so I went and worked at Merrill Lynch for um, probably about six, six years, um, worked really closely with some um, big institutional investors that were um, thinking about new ways to deploy money and use it, uh, use their capital as a way to affect positive change in the world. And um, it really aligned with the way that I was spending my sort of spare time, um, focused um, doing a lot of travel in the developing world. And so um, after about six years there, I, I, I moved into what's called um, impact investing. And uh, I started to build my skills on the operational side and um, spent the next seven, eight years um, working across the developing world in East Africa and South Asia, building companies um, to help you know, bring in marginalized pop- populations into the economic system. And um, so ended up building energy companies, finance companies, agriculture companies, um, spent a lot of time in Uganda. And um, the importance of that work and the, the role that government played in helping build nascent markets was super important. And um, after, you know, about, you know, uh, 
five, six years of that work, I stepped back and, and said, I love this. Like my motivation is, you know, to learn and solve really big problems. Um, and what is the next sort of critical platform to reach, you know, every person, every object on this planet? And, you know, more and more I dug into that question, um, space became the answer. And um, my background afforded me sort of a unique opportunity, experience raising capital from institution and working with institutional LPs, um, experience operationally building companies in really challenging markets where you have to partner with governments and, and not-for-profits to help build um, a, a robust ecosystem. Um, and so those, those two skill sets sort of made me an ideal um, candidate uh, to help, you know, join Space Capital and help grow and build that that firm. And so that was sort of the path, sort of a non-traditional pathway into space. Yeah, it's funny. I think there's uh, very few traditional pathways nowadays. Uh, think about new space, it's all a smattering of skill sets. And, uh, you know, really with some of the last talks, we've heard a lot about how diverse skill sets can be incredibly valuable, especially operationally. I mean, especially in this new space industry that requires so much diversity of, of knowledge and uh, multidisciplinary collaboration. Um, so let's get a little more into Space VC. So you were talking about stepping back from your traditional financial roles. Then when did you discover uh, Space VC and how did you connect with Space Capital? How did that process play out for you? Yeah, um, it was about five years ago. Um, I was I was living in Uganda, working um there and sort of thinking about what my next steps would look like. And um, I was considering raising a fund um, to target, you know, early stage opportunities in sort of East Africa. There was a lot of activity happening there. And um, uh, I moved back from Uganda to the to New, New York and um, was connecting with a number of investors that were also um, raising capital for more specific um focus areas. And that's been a major theme probably over the last decade is what's called uh, the emerging manager, um, emerging VC manager um, asset class. And um, so I connected with Chad Anderson. He'd been running um, an angel investing platform um, called Space Angels since uh, 2012 and was at an inflection point where he was getting ready to raise institutional capital to work with some of the bigger players out there. And um, you know, we just started talking about big, tough, complex problems and the work that I'd done in, in Uganda and that we, he was doing. And the more we talked, the more overlap we saw um, how satellite data can be used to solve agriculture problems or support, you know, energy or respond to deforestation. And I was just like, wow, you know, it really opened my eyes to incredible power and reach that, you know, satellites have in our day to day lives. And so uh, that that was sort of the dialogue that, you know, began and, and what brought me in. Yeah, that's definitely a, a great frame to put the space industry in, you know, coming from this very like much Earth application side of it, because a lot of people say like, oh, you know, people who are working in space are kind of leaving Earth behind and like they're so high sighted that they're forgetting about all these problems to solve. But I think it's really quite the opposite. As you illustrate there, I mean, you were working not in space and then you came to space from the side of space can be so helpful in all these areas. I think that's a really compelling argument there. Um, but I, I'm curious, so being in space capital for this short time, how has it changed? How have you adapted to it? Um, has there anything, has there been anything noticeable that's changed? Well, I think the, when you're building critical infrastructure, um, 
the role that government plays as a partner, you know, can't be understated. And, um, you know, particularly this more new entrepreneurial approach to rockets and satellites, you know, that really began sort of back in 2009, um, what we call the dawn of the entrepreneurial space age, which is, you know, when SpaceX achieved its first orbital launch. And I, I don't think, you know, it sort of gets under, you know, appreciated, but, you know, essentially the market was controlled by just one or two players. There was um, no comp- very limited competitive dynamics and it kept the barriers to entry very high for anybody to get in. And um, what SpaceX did achieving that orbital launch was essentially breaking up sort of a monopoly structure. And I think what was even more important was in 2010, um, they published launch pricing. And so what that allowed uh, an entrepreneur to do is say, now I know what it costs to get an object on orbit. I can actually build a business plan and pitch to a venture capitalist the potential to build a business model around this. You know, And that really democratized access, not only for entrepreneurs, but for student groups to be able to put a CubeSat up in space, you know the cost. It, dram- it created a competitive force that drove down access to space and really opened it up to you know, a whole broad set of innovation. So that, that's what I think we've witnessed over the past probably from 2000 to 2010 was this huge investment in sort of launch infrastructure. And sort of from 2010 Maybe up to maybe the last five years, you've seen a pretty radical shift in how satellites are built and the more commercialization of low Earth orbit. And now I think what we're starting to see is, you know, with that huge investment in infrastructure, how do we start to utilize that infrastructure to derive a lot of value? And at the end of the day, who's the customer that's paying for those satellites? Who's the customer that's willing to pay for those launches? At the end of the day, it's, it's data. Right now, that's what the commercial market is. It's people paying for access to data and building it into apps um, that you know, solve really you know, tough problems. So that's, that's the evolution that I've witnessed. And it's really been that, that transition from infrastructure to sort of moving downstream. How do we monetize it? Right. Yeah. And it's very exciting to finally see that value in space realized because I think you know, maybe even for the past decade, there have been articles kind of released like, oh, space has trillion dollars of value or like, oh, asteroid mining companies can mine $10 billion off one asteroid. Uh, You know, these very high sighted um, ideas of what a space market could be. But like you say, you know, there's all these innovations and steps in infrastructure that need to be made before you even start tapping into that value. Um, And one thing I was saying to Chad, when we talked, uh, I think you can really kind of um, use the analogy of thinking of the water on earth. I mean, we've got all of this value in space, but it's all frozen because of these steps that we have to take. You know, maybe it's, we rely so much on this, you know, government provider chain, so many rocket providers that we can't be flexible with. But, you know, as we go further downstream, as we have more applications, more technology to build these networks and ecosystems on, then, you know, you can increase frequency, bring down the cost and so on. And then you can finally actually pitch these, ideas and pitch these markets as more than theoretical. Because I think the issue with the space industry um, until very recently was how do we fit this puzzle piece into the markets today? You know, you could go into an investment meeting and and talk about the value all day, but it really wouldn't mean much because, you know, space companies really don't have many customers, you know, unless they're selling data nowadays, which is just becoming a thing. So it's just been really interesting to see that 
the space industry is really a lot younger than many people really even think. It's just starting to break into sectors and subsectors and actually have uh, the character that a normal industry would and the investment potential that a normal industry would. Um, but going forward, I'm really curious, um, what are your future plans for space talent um, and, and how does that kind of fit in with space capital? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we launched Space Talent um, as a, a free talent platform, um, let's see, in the third quarter of last year. And you know, the, the goal of it is very, very aligned with SED's mission, you know, fostering the development of future leaders you know, in, in the expanding space industry. And what we realized is being a specialized investor, investing all across the technology stack, we had, you know, folks from, you know, the aerospace industry, the traditional hard engineering hardware um, coming to us. We had folks from tech and communications and agriculture coming to us because we had the largest portfolio of companies out there. Um, and, you know, hundreds of individuals excited about what was happening and looking for ways to build a career path, you know, into sort of space technology. And we, we, we worked hard to like create those actual connections and, and find employment opportunities for folks. But then we realized, we stepped back and we realized, you know, our success is directly tied to the future success of this entire industry. And while we can only invest in a small subset of the companies that are out there, um, that seeing great you know, talent flow into this industry is the most important thing that we can be doing. And that's the purpose of, of space talent, to make it easy to build a career at the intersection of space and technology. And the way that we do that is sort of through three um, unique offerings. The first is a jobs board. Um, and soon we're going to host over 500 companies. There'll be more than 5,000 jobs. And this is global all around the world. It's updated every day. You know, you're seeing in real time dynamic positions open up from everybody from SpaceX all the way to like Google Loon, you know, um, and really sort of understanding what the whole suite of opportunities is. Uh, the second thing that we're, we're excited to be launching are tools for founders. So to actually have platforms to be able to leverage the space technology stack, opening up access to that data and allowing, you know, anybody who's curious about leveraging, you know, space technology to start building on it and um, be able to pitch to our funds and secure up to $1.5 million in financing. So that's the second thing we'll be launching. And then the third is around insights. Um, so anybody in their career path, you know, building a business, we produce uh, an annual career trends report. Um, and then we're also working with SEDS. We've been, you know, actually working for a couple of years, building out a formal partnership and finding ways to share diverse perspectives across the ecosystem um, to make sure that those voices are, are heard and, and helpful in your career journey. So that's what it is, uh, and, and that's sort of the vision. I have a question about the jobs board side of it. So you have a, a pretty amazing list of companies. How are you able to get all the data from those companies so that you can have it on one centralized platform? Yeah, great question. So um, starting with understanding what jobs are, are credible, what fit this sort of new entrepreneurial theme, this new universe, we're uniquely positioned to evaluate that credibility. So we're looking at companies that were founded after 2000, 
Um, so that eliminates a lot of sort of the um, more traditional aerospace companies and companies that have raised at least a million dollars in equity financing. We want to make sure that they you know, can bring somebody on and be able to pay them you know, for a period of time. So that's sort of the second dimension. The third dimension is, you know, how do they fit into like the space technology stack like we've talked about? And you really you have to have a picture of that whole um, that whole vertical and, and we're able to help define that. Um, so that that's how the companies how we become aware of the companies. Then when we um, actually post the data, um, so this is this is publicly available data. Um, we go out to a company's job board and we're able to scrape that data in real time. And basically all we're doing is curating you know, uh, the open job posts in a simple, easy, searchable, centralized database. Um, so we make it easy for you to navigate that world and be able to find all your information in one spot. And this is particularly helpful for, you know, um, folks that are looking for internships, as opposed to going to every company's website, you just go to ours, type in intern, and you know, you'll see a hundred different opportunities. So it makes it a lot faster to get to the information that you're looking for. Yeah, definitely. And I think the value of that is tremendous. Going back to kind of what I was talking about, there's all these barriers preventing us from realizing all the other value in technology and applications in space. But the, the actual human capital is something that's not often considered. You know, one thing that you could say is even that there's all this value in the space industry that can't realize just because we don't have enough people. You know, if we had enough people that could go uh, colonize the moon, you know, that could have been done years ago. But obviously, we have limitations in manpower and launch vehicles, you know, and technology, but more people really, you know, the more people you throw at it, definitely, you can solve problems faster. And it's really interesting to see that that investment of human capital is uh, an equally valuable investment to, to time and money. Yeah, and a diversity of perspectives, folks coming from different industries can really help unlock and, re and rethink some of the way that ways that we're you know, developing hardware, um, using automotive parts that, you know, aren't rad hardened, but are, you know, definitely environmentally, you know, um, uh, resistant and, and can be used in satellite capabilities. Like, you know, just that simple insight, you know, could save you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in, in, you know, developing and building a satellite. Or particularly when we talk about the data that comes down, you know, we need a lot of minds to start um, hacking this problem. When you think about GPS, GPS is, a, is, you know, from a data perspective, a very, very simple signal. There isn't a lot there. And we've built so much on top of that rudimentary, you know, piece of piece of data. When you start to think about um, Earth observation and the complexity of that data, just with optical data, you know, it's an exponentially bigger more complex, challenging opportunity. We need people to, you know, get in there, start working with the information and start to figure out what's valuable and what's not. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's also just another um, thing to say about diversity. I mean, with all of these people from non-traditional backgrounds, both in, in education, but also just from where they were raised in their cultures, I think that is is incredibly valuable, valuable given that we're a very, or a very homogenous industry as far as our, our backgrounds go. I mean, it's, it's, Definitely got a long ways to go in terms of diversity, and, and there are tremendous benefits that we're going to see because of that. So raising that accessibility even further with job platforms dedicated to space, I think it's a huge step in the right direction. Um, I think you know a lot of these companies are trying to do the right thing also by uh, having diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, but really, I think that you know this next generation of space engineers, you know, we really need 
an exponential increase in the capital or in the human capital and in like the breadth and the backgrounds of that human capital in order to make all of our goals achievable, you know, with Artemis, with Mars missions, you know, I really think it's going to require engineers from diverse backgrounds to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. The diversity question is um, one of the founding sort of guiding principles for us with this platform. And, you know, the initial data that we've looked at in our first career trends report shows, you know, for a, for a company, you know, that is hiring, it's a, it's a critical determinant of particularly the sort of next generation of, of talent looking for jobs and getting in. They want to work with a diverse workforce and they're expecting, you know, the employers to act that way. And, you know, frankly, um, the, 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 the pipeline and what we've seen in sort of our initial data um, you know, we're really far from getting to that, you know, uh, any form of diversity. And so that is a critical goal of, of our platform and, and what we're going to invest in and try to figure out, you know, uh, unique ways to try to um, help the industry. Um, so still, still more work to do there. You know, we want to have a really good understanding of what the data looks like um, to understand where we can be a, a sort of a long term contributing partner there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very noble pursuit. And you know, it makes us all proud, it says to hear that you're working so hard on it. Um, so I think that goes uh, through all of our main questions. We've got some student questions, general discussion questions. Um, these first two are from me, you know, just coming from an investment side of things. I'm curious. So what do you think are the most valuable space technologies that are being applied to our lives today? You know, just purely in terms of like something we use all the time that people normally don't think about? I mean, this is an easy one for me. Um, GPS is one of the most valuable technologies, you know, that that's ever been created. I mean, some, I would argue that it's on par with, you know, um, the internet. It, it's allowed the connecting of the physical world in a way that, you know, the internet created for the digital world. And if, you know, if, if you don't believe me, just pull up, you know, your phone, go into settings and look at location services. Literally every single app on your phone is using location in some way to tailor experience or literally foundationally create the platform that they, they offer. So most people don't realize that that is, you know, a satellite based signal and that helps us navigate the world, connect. Um, manages communication infrastructure, sets timing for our financial markets, um, you know, has created trillions of dollars of economic value just in the United States alone. And that's why you're now seeing, you know, um, Europe and China and some of these other, you know, uh, uh, countries not relying on just the UPS um, GPS infrastructure, but building their own because it is such a foundational piece of infrastructure that they need to have it, you know, within their own sort of national security interests. So that to me is probably the most um, underrated and valuable, um, you know, set of, of infrastructure that we have to date. And for us, it actually gives us sort of a playbook on how, how a space-based signal that had a very narrow military focus ended up becoming, um, you know, a multi-trillion dollar value creator and, and supporting, you know, pretty much every major industry um, uh, in the world. And so if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend you checking out 
the GPS playbook. It's a, a report that we co-published with Silicon Valley Bank, and it really goes into that history. Um, super fun to see, you know, uh, Steve Jobs at the iPhone 3G announcement, getting like really excited. The fact that GPS was now being integrated into all the iPhones and what that would create from a software perspective. Um, you know, it's just a history that I don't think many people understand. No, absolutely. And I think that's another one of those, um, you know, underrated connections between space applications and Earth. You know, it's very important to keep that in mind and to remind people of that, you know, as far as space applications. We're not just coming up with space applications. There are already so many. Um, And then kind of going back to what you were saying, how simple GPS is, you know, it's definitely a lot simpler than optical data, a lot simpler than some of these remote sensing applications that we have on satellites now. So really, you know, looking forward into the future, what are the signals um, for, you know, the next big thing, the next GPS for you? What have you been looking at and what are some trends uh, technology wise, like technologies that you think that could be the next big application? Yeah. So geospatial intelligence, you know, the whole set of Earth observation satellites and instruments that have come online over the last 10 years. Um, there's been a ton of innovation there, whether it be you know, what planet's been building or some of the more established players that, you know, have been launching much more high precision um, uh, capabilities. But optical, there's a lot of activity happening in optical. And we're finally now getting to, you know, the resolution where um, you can do a lot with optical technology. And we're starting to integrate, you know, AI and ML tools that were developed in other you know, parts of sort of uh, different industries. And that technology is now starting to make its way into geospatial intelligence in a way that's really starting to unlock the value there. So um, for us, that is super, super exciting. You know, we've started to see basic applications such as um, the the monitoring of power lines. So we all know that the fire in California, um, campfire, was started by a vegetation encroachment on power lines. Um, and you know the cost to be able to monitor you know thousands, millions of miles, you know that, at least thousands of miles of, of um, you know, power lines using traditional helicopter or even drone technology is prohibitive. And, and frankly, we just can't solve that problem um, with the cost infrastructure that's there. But satellites and using sort of uh, automated uh, monitoring capabilities can allow you to just, you know, daily check the vegetation encroachments and create alerts to be able to, you know, protect those utilities from hopefully, you know, other multi-billion dollar, um, you know, lawsuits and, and uh, you know, natural disasters that were a cause of it. So that's just a very simple example. Uh, you know, we're starting to see insurance companies that are, are getting so deep into sort of the automation of technology that um, you don't even really, um, the end user doesn't even really look at the imagery. They're making a specific API call request about a location, a property, and a specific dimension of that property and getting that data back and insight very specific about that specific need to refresh their insurance policy. And so when you think about a world that's post-COVID where um, less, you know, less activity happens on site, direct person to person, 
Earth observation is an incredibly powerful tool set to help a lot of sort of these, you know, bigger industries like insurance, like energy, uh, like agriculture, take a step forward into sort of this more remote monitoring environment. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, one of the most promising applications in the future. Um, definitely, I'll have my eyes out for it as well. So going you know further into exciting things um so earth observation technologies are obviously really interesting and there's a lot going on there right now um but with the other uncertainties in the economy uh some of the other companies out there like we you know asteroid mining um some of the other fringe technologies have kind of fizzled out um, but other 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 technologies are um other interesting opportunities uh they're keeping you excited about the future of space business yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, thinking a little bit more about the frontier opportunities, um, this is where, you know, we learn and, and, and understand the role that government has played to make space data uh, a viable, you know, um, ecosystem. You know, it's the development of SpaceX, the multi-billion dollars of partnership that the government put into SpaceX to drive down that launch cost and the innovation that's continued to happen through commercial partnerships and, you know, the miniaturization of satellite buses and bringing in, you know, um, sort of alternative, you know, COTS, you know, hardware into the uh, development of these satellites. That has made a robust supply chain, a robust market for, you know, space for the benefit of Earth. And now what that has freed the government up to do is start to prioritize the commercialization of low Earth orbit and reallocate their resources into a whole variety of new sort of emerging industries. And, you know, whether this be from, you know, biospheres and, you know, commercial human habitation in space to on-orbit manufacturing, whether that be physical goods or potentially even, you know, um, biomedical um, opportunities, um, or even thinking a little bit farther out and thinking about, you know, how do we start to um, commercialize early sources of, you know, resources from, you know, our, our you know, near, nearby you know, planetary bodies, including the moon. And this is where I think water comes into play and is incredibly exciting. We're going to need the ability to sustain life and fuel ourselves anywhere that we go. And so, you know, the work that we're doing with, you know, uh, Artemis and, you know, um, some of the commercial partners that are help moving that forward, in particular, Astrobotic, um, helping uh, understand, identify sources of, of water on the moon is, is super exciting. Um, so, you know, from a commercial standpoint, the, the markets for those are unknown and small. They're anchored by a government provider and they're, 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 beginning to develop. But over time, those could be incredibly, you know, um, robust and vibrant economies, as we start to see what commercial opportunities emerge from that. So anybody looking for a career on sort of that next emerging frontier, um, you know, those are those are super exciting. Um, one one last item that I'll mention that's a little bit more back down here on Earth. Um, uh, and focus on low Earth orbit. So space situational awareness is is really interesting. Um, you know, I don't think that, that that will really mature as a market until there is some sort of global regulation um, designed around it. But um, 
the way that a market starts to develop is through transparency, what's actually happening. Um, and same thing with SpaceX publishing their launch pricing. And so um, Leo Labs is a, a company that we invested in and their radar arrays are um, creating, you know, um, two centimeter resolution and object detection and potential impacting um, of, of satellites in low Earth orbit. And this is a, a critical step to start to unlock, um, you know, the value of space situational awareness and preserving really the environment of low Earth orbit. So that's a really exciting one, too. Definitely. Yeah. So it's really great to hear there's so much that's got you excited. Hopefully some of our listeners can get excited about that as well. Cause I know, you know, for me, for some of my friends, it's definitely been dismaying seeing some of these companies go bankrupt, seeing kind of some of these fringe technologies, not really pitching as enthusiastically. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely just these resources end up somewhere else. Companies get bought out, technologies get bought out, you know, patents end up being used. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely a lot that's still to, to be excited about and a lot of jobs on this like sort of fringe technology, like you said, with uh, exploiting the resources from the moon, going to Mars, um, et cetera. I mean, there's definitely so much there. And it, if you are really passionate about that more fringe technology and, you know, building rovers to you know, land on the moon or, or Mars, you know, um, a career path, you know, working with the government is going to be, I think, in the immediate term, you know, the most viable opportunity. And, you know, there's a ton that's happening there. And commercial partners are now lowering the cost to put things on orbit and go out into deep space. And I believe that there will be more experimentation, more access to deep space for the government and some of these agencies as a result. And so, you know, if that's really where your passion is, um, I, I think that we're going to be coming to an exciting time to really build and deploy and collect, you know, data. Essentially, now we're just collecting deep space data versus data for the Earth. So um, super exciting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a pretty exciting time to be graduating. But also, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, there are reasons to be concerned about graduating during this time. The job market's obviously shifting quite a bit. Um, you know, it's evolved for sure. And there's some level of adaptation that the students are responsible for. Um, what are some of these changes that you've seen, you know, developing space talent, um, some of the adaptations that you've made or, or some comments that you've had from people using the platform? Yeah, so um, we did post a report um, about COVID. Um, so monitoring the jobs um, in real time, we have both supply and demand. So we can actually sort of see how the market is changing in, in real time. And um, there's a, a report, a free report on our website that looks at sort of the response. And I think it was probably around uh, early early May, um, what what we had seen in terms of the shift of, of jobs. And so there was a, a really significant decline in the number of jobs available. But surprisingly, um, there was an even greater sort of decline in the number of individuals curious and looking for jobs. And, um, you know, the, the government did, did step in and has been um, a really valuable partner, particularly that infrastructure layer of space companies. They've accelerated their contracts. They've increased their spending um, to ensure that, you know, some of these, you know, more innovative sort of infrastructure companies have a source of, you know, customer instability in this uncertain time. And so now we've started to see you know, folks sort of come back to the table and start to consider that space, that, that you know, career path in space. But um, I think when there's so much uncertainty in the world, like I think 
people just don't take risks as much as they they you know would otherwise and you know maybe they look at space as a risky career path or something that feels a little bit more uncertain to them um but uh we we've now seen jobs come back um and we've seen a lot of interest come back as well so does that answer your question yeah no definitely that's a great perspective to have there i mean you obviously were able to see how everything is changing but uh one thing that I remember back from when we talked to Megan Crawford uh, over at Space Fund, she was saying, you know, space is one of the quickest markets to bounce back. You know, deep technologies obviously are more resilient to these uh, shorter term changes. So, you know, we're hoping that as these companies continue to hire that, you know, these next wave cases don't kind of uh, dampen the space economy even more. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely good to see that these companies are starting to hire more and starting to kind of go back to normal operations after this little Uh, phase of hibernation here. And hopefully that continues on um, as expected. To add a little more color there. um, So a a number of the critical infrastructure, deep tech, hardware, you know, companies, um, they are able to access, you know, government grants. They're able to, um, uh, you know, secure SBIR funding and, um, you know, to to bring in in alongside um, venture capital funding. So that that's sort of the resiliency I think in some of you know this deep tech work is there are multiple sources available to be able to ensure that there's funding available. Um, in addition to that, the customers tend to be the government or other businesses, which are less cyclical and and they're less impacted. So they're making decisions over a longer time horizon, and so they tend to be a little bit more stable. Um, when you, you when you move downstream and you get into some of those applications, that's where you start to engage with some some more consumer behavior, and it does get a little bit more cyclical. But um, we actually just recently published our our um, second quarter uh, uh, space investment quarterly and looked at the flows into these different layers of the technology stack, and you did see a significant drop off in infrastructure, some of that hardware. Um, and the government has stepped up to help fill in some of those gaps. Interestingly, a lot more investment. There's actually been an increase in the application. So when you think about location-based servicing, and you think about sort of you know food delivery and um, you know taxi services and things like that, those are incredibly high demand given this environment. And so there's actually growth when it comes from an application, just like we were talking about in Earth observation. Um, there's real opportunity there to build companies and join companies that are leveraging that technology. Yeah, I've I've seen quite a few companies that have started after the pandemic, even you know, which is really exciting just to hear that there are people who are even willing to take risks in this time where you know people are even less incentivized to take risks. And you know, really great information there. Obviously, those perspectives, you know are uh, highly dependent on the data that you have access to, you know, being a part of space capital and space talent. And I think that's super awesome to hear that, you know, being uh, a technology or being an industry that's reliant um, in part on grants and on governments that are more resilient to these sorts of changes that we will sustain. I have a question relating to the AI you mentioned earlier. So we were talking about harnessing AI to improve Earth observation. Can you walk us through how that might work? I think there's a, a couple challenges. Um, so one of the first challenges to utilizing Earth observation data is you have freely available government data that is valuable um, in a handful of use cases, but 
the revisit rates and the technology refresh and sort of the continued improvement of that information isn't, you know, um, it's, it's unknown. And then you have the new commercial satellites and operator owners and operators that are building, um, you know, their capabilities. But most of that data they keep in in house, so they're vertically integrated. And so they're they're building the satellites, they're bringing the data down, and then they're building sort of the end applications or the end insights all in one company. And so that makes it really hard for um, if you are going to acquire their data, they have minimum purchase requirements that are a, a big barrier to entry for anybody who wants to start experimenting or trying to understand. So the first you know sort of question is how how do I even get access to this data? And you know, you can start with, you know, some of the free government data. Um, there is now um, a platform that allows you to access um, this data through an API. Um, it's called Skywatch. We invested in them. And they're working with multiple satellite, you know, owners and operators to bring that data down and make it easy. So you can you know, sort of geofence the specific area you want. You can look at time series analysis. You can get the data clean, aligned, and, and sort of easy to manipulate through a simple API. That reduces the barriers to access that information you know, exponentially. Um, and then once you have the data and you it, it's focused on a specific area and it's not cost prohibitive, um, you can actually now start to you know figure out what to do with it. And that's where I think AI and ML starts to get um, you know, much more interesting. So the, the thing that's, um, I think the biggest challenge with Earth observation data is there are millions of use cases out there for this data. You know, it's a picture. Like, how, how do we interpret, you know, what's happening in a static period of time? or over a, a time sequence? You know, is it counting cars? Is it trying to image roads and understand where qu critical infrastructure has gaps? Is it monitoring sort of the a forest footprint and understanding when deforestation is happening? You know, there, there are, you know, thousands, millions of use cases. And that really, to me, is an open source problem. You have to get a lot of people plugging in, understanding, interpreting, and once you start manipulating that information, then you need training data sets to actually start to be able to, you know, fine tune your algorithms and be able to detect that information in a robust manner. Simple difference of, you know, seasonality in an image can have radical consequences to the ability to count a car and, um, you know, or to identify a tree or to understand how your precision agriculture might, you know, operate using that data. So it's really, you know, one, understanding the use cases, then two, being able to get people to train the data, utilizing the data so we can actually get really smart. And then lastly, it's, it's really bringing that cost down for everybody to be able to access. And, you know, the reason GPS was so successful is it was free. Anybody could use it. Anybody could start experimenting with it. And until we get the cost of, you know, good quality Earth observation data down low, you know, there's going to be, you know, a barrier to people experimenting with it. And so, um, you know, those are, I think, are the three three issues that we're, we're very specifically focused on in building out the technology, working with the companies to unlock that value um, and create this sort of open source innovation kind of wrapping up here. Um, one little last question that we love to ask is just any advice 
um, you know, anything that you wanted to say to inspire the next generation, you know, having said this, your audience, if there's anything you want to say, you know, now's the chance. So, yeah, there's tremendous innovation that's happening right now at the intersection of space and technology. And um, the people that understand these two worlds are going to be incredibly valuable employees. And there's going to be a ton of opportunity if you're an entrepreneur. And so, you know, anyone can get involved in this opportunity, um, whether it's, you know, building your skills and becoming, you know, uh, you know, very technical from a, a hardware perspective and building the next generation of launch vehicles to creating a location based app to using AI to unlock the value of Earth observation data. There is an opportunity all along that technology spectrum and really for any background, whether it be technical or business or legal. And so I would encourage anybody that's even, you know, sort of remotely inspired by the idea of what space offers us to take a look at space talent because the companies on there are, are really solving some of the biggest, most complex challenges that humanity faces. And space is an incredible vantage point to be able to respond to, you know, climate change and how we navigate, how we communicate, and how, you know, everybody in this world can end up being connected to the Internet and having access to information and, and really being a part and connected into this global economy. So if, if that inspires you, if you're curious about that, you can start building today, you know, um, just just go to the website and start looking around. Yeah, I, I don't think it could be any more inspiring than that. Thank you. That was a great answer. So just to wrap up, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time, the excellent, brilliant advice uh, and this inspiration. And, you know, we hope to have conversations more in the future. I absolutely love being here. Um, love the podcast and really appreciate what SEDS is doing. Um, uh, if you haven't, um, we published a career guide. Um, it's available for free on Space Talent. Um, and in it, Deborah Factor talks about her career path, um, you know, from being sort of first introduced to space um, at university through the SEDS program. And that really, you know, created her career path going from Kistler to now, you know, um, you know, working in sort of a leadership role, um, you know, more broadly across the industry. And um, that is the model that you guys are working on. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And um, just uh, exciting to be so aligned with, with you guys as a partner. Yeah, it's great. And I really appreciate all your hard work and trying to work and partner with SEDS as an organization. Thanks, guys.